is another full episode of one of our favorite podcasts, Deep State Radio. Deep State Radio, hosted by David Rothkopf, produces new episodes two to three times per week and brings together top experts, policymakers, and journalists from the national security, foreign policy, and political communities. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you become a member of the DSR Network, you'll receive benefits such as ad-free listening via private feed, discounts to virtual events, and Deep State Radio swag, and access to the member-only Slack community. This is one of the most closely followed podcasts among the people influencing the most important decisions in Washington and worldwide today. You can learn more by visiting thedsrnetwork.com. Listeners to Words Matter will receive 25% off the regular membership price. Use code WORDSMATTER at checkout. Hello and welcome to another episode of the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, and uh, I'm in New York City. And as uh, every Thursday, I am joined by my co-host, Ryan Goodman of NYU Law School, who is also in New York City. Hi, Ryan. How are you? Hi, David. Pretty well, thanks. And we have a guest today, a new guest to, 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 to join in the mix here, Elizabeth Newman, uh, who is director of the Republican Accountability Project. You've probably seen her as a commentator on MSNBC and elsewhere. She was Assistant Secretary for Counterterrorism and Threat Prevention at the Department of Homeland Security. She served as Deputy Chief of Staff to the Secretary of Homeland Security and has been working in this field for some time, including uh, having served on the uh, first Homeland Security staff in the Bush 43 administration. Welcome, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for having me. Well, there's a lot to talk about here. Um, and I thought what we would do is, uh, usually we have kind of a roundtable format, but I think Ryan and I each have a couple of questions for you, and then we'll open it up a little bit as a, more of a roundtable. Uh, and I've just got to start, you know, you're talking about the Republican Accountability Project, and 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 I have to say, I sympathize with you. You certainly have your work cut out for you. Uh, In in seeing uh, pictures today of Kevin McCarthy, who, if I recall correctly, uh, just a couple of weeks ago was condemning the president of the United States for inciting an insurrection in the United States. He sort of went hat in hand down to Mar-a-Lago and sort of paid his respects to the organizer of the coup. This is the leader of the Republicans in the House of Representatives, three weeks after a coup attempt, going to the guy who helped organize the coup to sort of say, you know, hope I still have your blessing. Hope, you know, and of course there were pictures at Mar-a-Lago in this kind of ridiculous Rococo, you know, background. And and uh it was, I mean, my mind was blown. And so I can only imagine what your reaction was, but what was your reaction? Uh, I, I was telling a friend um, that, that this season of even, I, I don't even consider myself a Republican anymore, but um, I, still, I still want them to recover because I think there's, there's goodness for the country in having two healthy parties, the center right party uh, to, to balance and compete with in the, uh, um, the, the arena of good ideas with a center left party. I think that's healthy for the country. So I want them to succeed. 
And it's like the worst roller coaster where you get your hopes up ever so slightly that maybe there might be still people with character and then they dash your hopes that no, they don't. So um, I think it's outrageous that he went down there. I, I, you know, I kind of wonder like, is he having some sort of post-traumatic response where he is forgetting what happened three weeks ago? Is he not remembering the fear of, um, how bad it could have been. Uh, there were pipe bombs. There were military grade weaponry. There were people that we now know had reconnaissance, uh, had done reconnaissance and had maps and instructions of how to get to the chambers. They erected a gallows on Capitol Hill. These were not people just peacefully protesting or a mob that got a little unruly. There were elements of the, these efforts that um, intended violence, intended death, and it's by the grace of God that only five people lost their life. But one of them was a Capitol Police officer. Two uh, other officers have committed suicide since. So let's, let's just say that we've had three law enforcement deaths, and you think that you should go hang out with the guy that at a minimum is responsible for the big lie, that led people to this moment of storming the Capitol. But I think there's a stronger case to be made that, that he was intentional in, in using violent rhetoric that led to actual incitement. Um, I, I don't understand it. Like never in a million years would, if this, if this had been ISIS, would you, um, or, or if, I, to draw a parallel, if the president had been known to be having conversations with ISIS and ISIS stormed the Capitol, you would never actually go see that president three weeks later. You know, in fairness, it'd probably be under arrest at that point. But um, I, I, I just, it's mind boggling. It's mind boggling. It's disheartening. Um, and I also think, I think they're making a bad political calculation. I, they, this is all about the politics for them. They apparently could care less about security. They could care less that actions, what he did today is actually more likely to lead to more violence because they're not denouncing Trump. They're not saying that the election wasn't stolen, which is the, the undercore of a lot of where the violence came from. Um, and since they're refusing, in my mind, they're complicit in it and they're, they're helping lead us to more violence. Um, but I take, take the security out of it and just look at it through the political lens. I think they're greatly miscalculating. I think when the polls tell us that there are only 17% of the Republican Party that loves Trump, um, why would you be kowtowing to the, the very vocal 17%? That, that, that is, you know, 83% is left in the Republican Party that you could go after, and somebody will. Somebody will figure this out. They'll figure out that the, they'll get more money because there's been so much pulling of corporate um, dollars because of what happened on January 6th. There's an opportunity for people of character to try to step in and take, take apart. You don't even need all 83%. You, you just need 40%. 17% is not going to get you uh, the, the uh, primary win in 2024. So I, I just think they're making bad, a bad calculation. I think they're scared of Trump's shadow. I think they, it's almost an abuse spouse syndrome. They've been so abused these last four years that they, they don't know how else to act. And, and that's sad. They need to, if they don't know how to have courage, if they don't know how to speak the truth, they really shouldn't be holding office anymore. No doubt. Ryan? Yeah. Um, also, just to put another uh, punctuation mark in it, it was reported that on the day of the insurrection, Kevin McCarthy got into a quote-unquote screaming match with the president. 
because he was trying to get the president to make a bold statement to have the people stand down and leave the Capitol. And um, so it's just in terms of the 180 degree turn here um, for pure uh, political calculations that I, this seemed to be the wrong ones. Um, I guess one of the questions I thought that would be helpful to see if you could shed some light on it is the question of, in some ways it's the responsibility of the president for what happened on President Trump for what happened on January 6th and the lead up to it. Um, because one of the pieces is how much was he in all likelihood aware of the planning? And now that we find more information about what was out in the social media ecosystem with respect to how clear it was that people were talking about storming the Capitol and things like that. And I know that this is just speculative, will have to be speculative on your part, but the question is from inside, from what you know in terms of how the White House worked with respect to these issues, there's been speculation that, you know, he, that the that President Trump was informed by advisors by Dan Scavino and others as to what his followers were doing on social media sites, including some of these fringe sites. And if that's true, then it's almost impossible to believe that he wasn't informed about what they were planning. Some of them were planning for the for January 6th. And then the other question is, and we'll, I guess we'll turn more to about questions about domestic extremism and the threat uh, assessments. But after, the other question is how much did the president know that the Proud Boys uh, were broadcasting that they were coming to January 6th, that it was a part of their movement to um, capitalize on January 6th, that when the president made his statement in the debates about the Pride Boys should uh, stand back and stand by, and that they took that as an emboldening uh, statement, printing t-shirts and things that said that and tweeting out um, or posting, uh, standing by, sir, um, I think is what the leader of the Proud Boys said. How much do we think he knew about all of that? Um, because to me, I think one of the greatest concerns about what he did on January 6th is an act of omission that he could have any, at any point in time told those people, you're not welcome. You're not part of, part of this movement, um, but he didn't. Yeah, let's let's take that latter part first. I mean, he has a pattern in practice of anybody that's loyal to him, it, he's not going to dismiss. So um, he was asked about David Duke in the uh, 2016 campaign. He claims he didn't know who David Duke was, but um, I find that hard to believe. <laughs> and and even so, it took him a while to come back and be like, oh, well, I you know I denounce the KKK or I denounce white supremacy. Um, and he has this pattern in practice of when he gets asked the question, he almost never denounces. He doesn't denounce QAnon, uh, Charlottesville, they're good people on both sides. And then later his staff hand him a script that he reads. And then so you get the, you know, programmed response, you know, I didn't mean to say stand back and stand by, I, you know, there should be no violence, no violence, you know, and then usually a few days go by and then he goes back to what he, he really thinks. Right. And, and he does not like to be controlled by the staff. He loves, you know, shooting from the hips. So some of his uh, operating style is not necessarily an ideological, um, Hey, I want violence or, Hey, I like white supremacists as much as it is. They like me. And I'm going to therefore like them back because they like me because his world is all about him. So if they're going to do something for him, like help show up in numbers and, and, you know, they're still, 
and this is where we get into speculation, was he trying to create such a, uh, you know, unruly situation where martial law could be declared? I mean, certainly there were advisors like Michael Flynn that made an argument that that was possible. So was that influencing him? Is that why we see language out of um, many that were on the stage that day and in the weeks leading up to January 6th that, that was decidedly different when people analyze the, the tone and the, um, the words that were used uh, in the lead up to January 6th compared to other um, uh, protests. There were two other protests that occurred in November and December associated with the Stop the Steal movement. And the, when they analyzed the language, the language was different in the lead up to January 6th. Everything from the president saying, be there, it'll be wild, to uh, Giuliani talking about uh, you know, the need for combat. Um, like over and over and over again, there are these uh, words that are explicitly or implicitly indicating that violence is an appropriate solution here. Um, I, I fully agree with the assessment uh, that there is no way that his advisors did not know, like that Dan Scavino, who is on all of these platforms, there's, it's hard for me to imagine that he did not see the violent rhetoric. Now, where I will give them a little bit of potential um, benefit of the doubt is that we, we often see people online use violent rhetoric and it doesn't always cross into the real world. Um, it's often bravado. So is it possible that they saw this, but then didn't think anything would come of it? Sure. But if you saw that people are talking violent things, then there, you bear a burden of responsibility to not then go out on January 6th and use this violent rhetoric and call for them you know, to hold them accountable. And now's the time and it's all up to you you have a responsibility to recognize that the audience you're talking to is very volatile and to calm the temperatures down. So even if um, they didn't fully understand what they were seeing, which is, which is plausible, uh, and, and while I think the intelligence community or the law enforcement services seemed to understand that violence was, uh, was likely, we also know that they did not feel comfortable being the president on those types of things. He shuts down. Um, so I have a question, did, did Mark Meadows know, or did his national security advisor know, Robert O'Brien? Um, you know, did they know and did they give Trump the heads up? Like, hey, this is, this is looking to be kind of a sketch crowd. We got neo-Nazis coming in. Because we even heard stories before January 6th that the FBI had disrupted a few neo-Nazis that were planning on showing up and, and they did knock and talks and they encourage them not to show up. Um, so they, they seem to know that there were some bad characters showing up. You would think in a healthy organization, in a healthy administration, the law enforcement uh, briefs, briefs the attorney general, the attorney general says, yeah, we got to make sure the president knows. He tells the national security advisor, tells the chief of staff, and they would brief the president. And if that happened, and he still went out and said what he said, you know, more incompetence to uh, dereliction of duty and um, violation of his oath of office, in my, in my opinion, is certainly incitement to violence. Um, if they didn't tell him, then uh, that is further indication that how broken the system was, uh, that he was not being advised pr properly. Um, so any way you slice it, I think he bears the responsibility for what happened, whether it's because he broke 
the institutions that were supposed to warn him and warn the public about potential violence, um, or whether it is that he ignored it or that he was intentionally stoking it. I mean, that's, that's the far extreme there that maybe this was all a part of the plan. Um, when you have people like Roger Stone and uh, Giuliani and you know his, uh, his, his kids, they're all hanging out and meeting up with the various factions in advance. Like it, it doesn't smell right. Uh, and my guess is now that he is gone, the FBI is looking into all of those connections and we might be shocked what we discover. I, I think we, we dodged a bullet. I don't think the American public knows how close of a bullet it was. So let me try something as a sort of a intellectual exercise here, and you can blow it full of holes in a second. I think all the analyses that you're doing are the kind that Ryan and I and other people have been doing publicly about this. Um, and I think in some respects, we continue to give the president too much benefit of the doubt. It's probably true. Be because if you go and you look at this, from months ago, the president began to lay the predicate that if the election didn't go his way, he was going to use every means available at his disposal, legal or illegal, to undo the election. And this included saying it would be rigged months in advance. Frankly, he, he started laying the predicate for it in 2016, if you recall. But, but it, once again, in 2020, he did that. Um, and then in the run-up to the election, he, he uh, in addition to trying to suppress the vote, um, uh, immediately, uh, and he began to say, you're going to see things on election night that will demonstrate this is rigged. And then as soon as election night unfolded, he said, see, as I told you, this was rigged. And... Um, after the election, he undertook a number of steps in parallel to try to undo this. This includes 60 plus court cases, none of which um, were based on any evidence whatsoever. Um, but uh, it, you know, there was a massive effort to challenge and undo the elections. It includes an effort by the president and reportedly allies of the president, like Lindsey Graham, calling up the states like the state of Georgia and saying, look, I just need 11,000 more votes, which is a federal crime, right? Um, it includes efforts by you know, Republican attorney generals in support of that kind of an effort. There was something going on at the Department of Justice where he seemed to seek from the Department of Justice an effort to bring the case somehow to the Supreme Court and have it invalidated. It is not entirely coincidental that the so-so fan of the Constitution, Bill Barr, exited at that point, this being apparently a bridge too far for him. But the president did maintain that avenue. And within a month, six weeks, two months before this January 6th, the president started saying something big is happening on January 6th. Allies of the president started saying something big was happening on January 6th. And apparently, members of the Trump campaign organized or helped organize the event on January 6th, paid for or helped pay for the event on January 6th. Um, and this was not a rally. This was not 
a let's show support for the president kind of an exercise. It was a purposeful exercise to do what he was trying to do in the courts and elsewhere. And that is stop the process by which the election would be certified. And as, as recent as, 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 as close to the event as the Monday night before the event, to pick one example, uh, Senator Hawley was on national television and was asked about the outcome of the election. And his response was, well, let's see what happens on Wednesday. So it wasn't that he thought there are going to be a lot of people and, and confetti, and this is going to be a wonderful show of support for the president of the United States. It was, we think we are going to do something that is going to change the outcome of the election. Now, you don't do that with a crowd cheering. You might do it with a mob attacking the White House. And the language, as you said, was the language of attack. They were obviously prepared to attack. They had the weapons to attack. They had the plans to attack. They had the comms to attack. They had perhaps assistance on the inside to attack. The president overtly supported it. They went in. We have them on videotape saying we're doing it for the president. We're doing it for Ted Cruz. We you know, if this were any other case with any other person, we would not be sitting here saying, oh, there maybe was a breakdown. We would be sitting here saying this is an open and shut case of a conspiracy to plan and launch a coup against the government of the United States. Or do, 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 I mean, I just did this off the top of my head, but is it? I mean, don't, don't, don't. Well, I watch too much MSNBC, but <laughs> but, but 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 don't you think? That, that, that maybe we're pulling our punches a little bit here. This is not close. You know, it's not, it's, it, if this were any other kind of legal case, this guy would be sitting in an orange suit in a cell. I, I agree with what you just said at the very end there. Like, I, I think what makes it unique is, is his presidential status, right? Like that they couldn't, um, uh, you know, there, there were some handcuffs on the Justice Department about what they could be doing before he left. Uh, so I'm, I would, I have to assume that they have any number of investigations associated with him and his cabal of supporters, uh, Giuliani and Donald Trump Jr. and uh, Roger Stone. Uh, you know, there's, there's just no doubt that all, all um, these people, by the way, who reportedly met together on January 5th exactly. to help plan this thing. Roger Stone, you know, um, uh, uh, famous felon that he is, traveling around with the Oath Keepers, right. who are part of the planning of this. Yeah, no, I, I, I don't disagree with you. I, I think the part of what's so shocking is that it's only three weeks later and Republicans have forgotten it. I mean, if you remember, immediately at the White House, all of the White House staff were like, oh, crap, like he just committed a crime and I'm associated with this and I got to get out. Right. Like it, it was so obvious to everybody around him that what he had done was criminal. It wasn't just the shame that that people had died or that the Capitol had been stormed. But you had the White House count, counsel, Pat Cipollone, who was advising him you know, you, you know, you're likely going to be under investigation. Be careful what you say and do. Um, so, so there's no doubt in my mind that, uh, that what he, what he has done is criminal. I'm not a lawyer. And what I don't, um, don't know is how well they might've covered tracks or created fall guys, or, you know, what, what is the evidence actually going to show that you could actually prove in court? 
certainly the evidence that we can see, his language, his tweets, um, and then you have the, the people that stormed the Capitol who are now saying, but he told me to do this. Um, you know, a, a good, wouldn't take a, a, a too, hard, too good of an attorney to, to do a really good prosecution on that, but I'm sure a good defense attorney can come up with alternatives. So what I don't know is how this ends up from a criminal justice perspective. I think it's a slam dunk. He needs to be impeached. Like there's, there's really no argument there. And, and I have, I can't even stomach all of the Republicans arguments about why they're, they're not going to convict. Um, I know some of its process, which, okay, fine. Uh, in some ways that tells you if all they've got is process that they know that it's, you know, what he did was is totally impeachable and uh, horrid. Um, but they really, really should convict. And I, I'm just really heartbroken that it doesn't look like the votes are there. Who knows, maybe, maybe some more evidence will come out and it'll twist some arms and they'll feel like they have to convict. But it's, um, to your point, I, everything you look out, it, it is slam dunk. It's just, you also wonder how they may have covered for him. So I'm curious to see how the investigation unfurls and how they might try to deflect onto other people. It was other people's fault. Ryan, do you have another question? Or since you're the lawyer among the three of us, maybe. Yes, tell, tell us the legal analysis. Yeah, yeah. Um, I agree with what a lot, not everything that the two of you just said. Um, like, I might put Holly in a different category. I, I think that he was playing with fire, but I don't think he understood um, or was part of the plan necessarily. I, so, I agree with that too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he's. Well, I, I wasn't suggesting that he was part of the plan. I was suggesting that when you sit on a Monday night and say, let's see what happens Wednesday, it is revealing what the expectation of this event is. Uh, not, right? It's yeah, not though I. Sorry, go ahead. Go on. No, though I think that what he's doing is in his heart of hearts, he's a very good lawyer or he's, he's had a good legal education. Let's put it that way. Um, um, he knows nothing is going to change the outcome on Wednesday. It is a political move on his part on Monday to say, because he can't say on Monday, nothing's going to change it on Wednesday. Biden's going to be your president. <laughs> he has to maintain the, the fiction that what he's doing on Wednesday is not idiotic and dangerous, but idiotic in the sense of it actually has no, no possibility of working. He has to say, well, maybe, you know, we, we'll see, maybe um, after Wednesday, it still might be. Or I think uh, there's also maybe one with Ted Cruz where he says something like, um, it'll be an uphill battle after Wednesday or something. Like what, after Wednesday, it'll be an uphill battle? Like there's no battle, there's, it's not possible. It's inconceivable um, that anything will happen but for Biden being, uh, um, uh, uh, president. So, but what he was doing was playing with fire because he was uh, telling this group and turning in the militias and the mob and the rest of it, that there's something possible, that there's this opening and indeed that he supports their viewpoint that this thing was stolen. So I think that's the playing with fire and he should have known better. Um, and similarly, I guess I'd just say very quickly, um, in case it's worth reiterating that to be, so this is all very consistent with what you both had said, to be impeached, it does not have to be proven that it was a crime. And also one of the reasons that impeachment is there is because even if the person lacks the deliberate purpose of trying to stage an insurrection, if they are so incompetent as to do it through negligence or um, recklessness, like they know the danger of this manifesting itself in something as 
grotesque as um, a violent um, assault on the U.S. Capitol, and they are responsible for it because they are, I think of him as um, somebody said in something uh, on Twitter, he is the indispensable man. If it were not for him and what he said and did, it would not have happened. That is a reason to remove a person like that from ever being able to seek uh, public office again. They have violated the public trust and we do not need to get into their criminal mental state. Um, so I think that's another reason that to me as well, like conviction, impeachment and conviction are just so obvious that that should happen. And then the criminal part, I, I agree as well. I think that um, there's the DC attorney general who said there's a criminal, he'll probably, he said he is engaging in an investigation for incitement to riot D, under DC law. And then separately, D, uh, the Department of Justice has said that it's likely that they're going to bring seditious conspiracy charges against some of the uh, groups and individuals who are involved. And then the question is uh, Trump's incitement to and engagement in a potential conspiracy with respect to a seditious conspiracy. And I think that's an incitement to the insurrection, which is also federal criminal law. And uh, let's see what happens. Um, I do think they might be able to roll some of these people up. Roger Stone uh, and his connections to the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys, they're rolling up the oath, some of those Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys. They will have access to their communications. Now, a lot of them will be encrypted and things like that, but then they'll also have a high incentive to flip. And we just learned uh, recently, due to Reuters report, that the head of the Proud Boys has been an informant <laughs> for law enforcement. I do not think this individual is um, going to do anything but look out for himself when it, the book gets slammed against him. And it's either turn against Roger Stone, potentially, if there is something to turn against Stone on. And with Roger Stone, we're now one degree of remove from the president. Um, so, I, you know, I do, I do think watch this space because with the Department of Justice invest, investing all of its resources and we no longer have the political pressure on them to do anything but follow the facts, this might end up someplace very serious. So, Elizabeth, let me sort of pivot a little bit. We've got about 10, 10, 12 minutes here. At the beginning, you were talking about, you know, this kind of bizarre spectacle of the Republican Party three weeks after this event, essentially forgetting it or setting aside the criticisms that they had. Uh, and actually in the House and in the Senate and with McCarthy and so forth, um, essentially sort of saying, we don't care. We're, we, you know, we're, we're, we're not, Trump's not going to be punished. And the, the likely odds is, despite everything that we've just said, um, and frankly, I feel our discussions here should have the power of a court of law. But, but in spite of everything that we've just said, um, Trump's going to probably not get convicted. And he's probably not going to face consequences. And, and there may be 80 or 100 or 200 people who get arrested for this, but it's not going to be the people who organized it. It's not going to be the main person um, behind it. And so then you have to ask yourself the question, why? And, you know, you've talked about a couple of reasons why. But there's a third possibility. And the third, or, you know, an additional possibility. And the additional possibility is they actually support this. That they actually see that they're the base of the Republican Party includes extremists, white supremacists, um, is anti-government far beyond any of the rhetorical attacks on government that may have been offered by Ronald Reagan 
you know, 40 years ago. Um, they're, they, they, those have been taken to their illogical, illegal extreme. And that Trump's going to walk away and that this actually may be ultimately seen as a victory, hmm. that they got to do it, that they disrupted things, that the leaders skated, that they weren't punished for it. Um, and with that in mind, you know, there was this report that 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 surfaced yesterday that federal government, Department of Homeland Security, where you were, had come up with concerns about domestic extremists and that Trumpists like Chad Wolf had essentially put the brakes on that it relates to your earlier comment about Trump not wanting to hear this, but they didn't want it to get out. And that we have a movement in this country that is dangerous enough for this to be released that is actually not necessarily going to take the events of January 6th as chastening. They might take them as encouraging. And I, this is you've been working in this area for 20 years. So what's your reaction to that? Um, it, you're spot on. Uh, I wrote an op-ed the week after uh, the week of January 6th. Um, it ran in the uh, Washington Post on on what would that been January 8th, I believe. Um, and I wrote it with uh, Kathleen Ballou, who is a historian uh, that has studied the militia and white power movements. Um, and when she describes herself, she she says, uh, you know, historians are, are supposed to study things 20 years back. Um, so she, she's an expert in what happened in the 80s and the 90s, um, but she uh, is fascinated by what's happening now, but it's not her uh, area of expertise. I have found her to be so helpful in understanding what we're dealing with now because it didn't start now. It started a long time ago. Um, and so we wrote this piece and, and we were explaining that many of the things that we were seeing of the, the, the video of the, the neo-Nazis and various uh, symbols um, anti-Semitic symbols uh, and, and other white power symbols that were there, that the gallows has a significance um, out of uh, uh, white power um, uh, ideology or theology, if you will. Um, and that in the Turner Diaries, there is a, um, a scene where, uh, and, and if you're not familiar with it, the Turner Diaries is a um, poorly written novel, but it's like the Bible for white, the white power movement, a fantasy about how the white power movement is able to eventually uh, conquer the world and establish a white nation. Um, and that one of the uh, first scenes to show like that this, this coming civil war, um, uh, global war is coming is that a group of white power people storm the Capitol or, and, they, and they do it differently than what we saw. They, they attack with mortars. Um, as opposed to what we we saw, you know, uh, on January 6th, but it had this rallying effect for the white power movement because of the Turner Diary story and the folklore that that is in that community. Um, many looked at what happened on January 6th as the the sign that they're um, uh, that they the the come the thing that they've been waiting for for the coming civil war it's finally coming true. And so you, that will have a, a, a multiple effects. One, there tend to be two different camps of white power people. You have the camp that um, 
uh, best best to think of uh, it, they Donald Trump is uh, the uh, example of why their form of ideology works. That their camp is you can work through the system to um, to try to instill white supremacist ideology through policy, and Donald Trump was a good tool for them, right? So they they call them the vanguardist. And then you have um, the more apocalyptic crowd that believed that basically around 1980-ish, um, they can no longer use the government to achieve their means and therefore the government is the enemy. And the only way that we are going to uh, achieve what, what our goal is, which is to preserve a, a, a white nation for our children, is that we need to overthrow the US government, establish our own white nation. And we're gonna do that through a, a theory called acceleration. Uh, and accelerationist. Now, that accelerationism um, as, a, as a, an approach uh, is used by different groups that are not necessarily white power groups. Bo Boogaloo Boys is another example of a, of a group that um, believes in accelerationism and their goal is a civil war, but it's depending on who you are talking to in the Boogaloo Boys, it may or may not be based on white supremacy. Um, some and militia movements are, are accelerationist, meaning, and the whole concept here is you look for moments in time where there's civil unrest or, or distress, and you conduct activities to make it worse than it already was. You're accelerating societal collapse to eventually lead to that civil war. And we actually saw that happen during the George Floyd protests. There were um, several incidents that Boogaloo Boys conducted. Um, and of course, what happened uh, when those incidents happened, it, uh, two of them had to do with targeting police officers. Trump blamed Antifa. See these, you know, wild uh, left-wing violent extremists. They're going after our law enforcement officers. How horrible! And of course, when the investigation is done and the people that are arrested, they were Boogaloo Boys, which are not left-wing Antifa. Um, so this accelerationism idea is, has been fairly powerful in the past, but for most, it's been this idea that it's something coming. We're looking for the moment when we can um, add additional violence to the chaos, and then that chaos will lead to societal collapse, and that's our moment. That's when we're going to establish our white nation. So January 6th, is like this clarion call that it's finally happening. We're finally seeing the moment where we can accelerate violence, we can accelerate societal collapse and the civil war will happen. And finally, finally we'll get our white nation. Um, so we were concerned, uh, both Kathleen and I, that uh, given the chatter that we were seeing after January 6th, um, particular groups and, and QAnon's different, Trump supporters are different, but the extremist groups, the groups that, existed before Trump, they'll exist after Trump. They could, in some ways, could care less about Trump. Um, they viewed this as a huge success, even though maybe they didn't uh, achieve as many deaths as they were hoping for. They, they were able to storm the Capitol. People died. Um, they are heroes in their, in their uh, uh, social circles. So um, it is encouraging recruitment. It is um, encouraging people to plan more attacks. Uh, they're also, because there's been this interest from the law enforcement community, they are buckling down in their operational security. They're reminding people not to chat about things online. So it's increasingly harder to figure out where they might go, what they might do. Um, and one of the key uh, aspects of both militia and uh, uh, white power movements is they have adhered to, for the most part, a, a leaderless resistance approach. 
which makes it harder for law enforcement to use things like RICO. It also makes it harder for law enforcement to track. So um, especially since many of them are online now, uh, what, you, what you tend to see is uh, conversations that encourage nobody planning in any organized capacity, but when you have your opportunity, take it, we'll support you. So Timothy McVeigh is a, is a classic example. He, he might've had a little bit of help um, from a, a few associates, but he wasn't a part of a massive terrorist cell. This wasn't orchestrated by somebody over in Afghanistan. Like it, it's a little different than what we tend to think when we think of terrorism and that there's a leader and they tell you what to do. Um, this is much more of a movement. And, uh, and, but it's also important not to view these individual actors as lone offenders. Um, they might be a single person conducting an attack, but they are part of a much broader movement and they learn from each other and they are encouraged by um, uh, and incited to go do these things uh, by the groups that they associate with. So um, all that to say, your, your point is spot on. The threat environment increased after January 6th. Now it was already high in my book uh, before January 6th. This bulletin should have been issued uh, this summer, if not, you know, then, then at least by November, December. Um, so uh, glad that DHS is able to now issue it. It was clear that it was, um, you know, held up for political purposes. Um, but all it's doing is telling us what the threat already was. They're not telling us that uh, anything new has happened in the last few days. It's just, hey, public, um, this is the environment we're now operating in. You need to be vigilant, see something, say something. Uh, if you're an owner and operator of critical infrastructure, and everybody thinks that that's referring to the AT&T bombing, which I'm not suggesting isn't a significant thing, um, but uh, white power movements have been targeting infrastructure for years. Um, so the, the fact that we're calling out uh, infrastructure needs to review their security plans and maybe change their operating tempos, um, that, that has more to do with the threat actors stated intents over the years as opposed to something new that just happened. Um, and then of course the communities that tend to get targeted, the Jewish community, the black community. Um, and then uh, we need to be particularly concerned about um, any uh, congressional targets or people that might have been particularly outspoken uh, and, and uh, taking action against um, what happened on January 6th. So, it's sadly probably going to be with us for quite some time uh, as the pandemic ends and we start going back into mass gatherings. It's going to create other targets um, that uh, certainly would be very, uh, you know, opportune for a white supremacist. Again, if you go back to the Turner Diaries, some of the next things that they do in that book include mass attacks. Uh, so, so for all of those reasons, counterterrorism experts are very concerned that the environment was high, it is now higher in terms of threat. And we are not really prepared for this. Um, the, it's not that FBI and DHS haven't been watching this, but we haven't been moving and getting in gear as fast as I wish that we should have. Um, it, and so it's gonna take some time for folks to figure out the best way to go after this threat. Okay, we're a minute or two over our target time here. I wanna give Ryan a chance for a last comment or question for Elizabeth, and, and we should keep it fairly compact here, Ryan. So I guess I have one quick follow-up question to part of what you just said and relating to, in some sense, where we, we ha now have this DHS uh, bulletin. 
So there's the NPR story that said the FBI did not do a bulletin or the DHS do an assessment prior to January 6th. And that the reason that they didn't do it is in part, according to officials telling them, First Amendment concerns about these individuals, which doesn't jive with the, it doesn't make sense because they do it with other groups. Um, they do an, a security assessment of the threat um, with respect to BLM, uh, George Floyd protests, things like that. And I guess my question I have is, how much do we think we are in a new era in which there's different political leadership? Chad Wolf is not there anymore. So this is being taken care of because that was political pressure versus we have a concern about biases within the FBI and the DHS. And the biases are, and that's partly what the NPR report was getting at. They didn't say it as explicitly, but it was like, well, these are um, people who sympathize with some of the political causes behind, not the overturning of the US government, but the Trump uh, idea that uh, Trump supporters and the election was stolen and anti-Biden and that valence and seeing the white um, crowd and white protesters coming to DC is not as threatening not, and they're not as apprehensive. When they see black protesters coming to DC, they're heightened over, you know, ex to an extreme, take a very different approach uh, to those groups, but not just from the law enforcement perspective, but from the intelligence perspective in terms of the intelligence failure here. How much are we dealing with a systemic racial bias, those kinds of issues within these agencies rather than just political pressure from the top? It's definitely both. It's a complex answer. Um, uh, there is unconscious bias, uh, no doubt. Is there um, a witting bias? Uh, that's a little harder to, to judge. Um, but the certainly in the three years that I was trying to draw attention to this, um, at DHS, some of the bias was organizational. Um, we had two people leading our intelligence group that came from the FBI and believed that that was FBI's job. They didn't quite view it as terrorism. They viewed it as hate crime, and that's what the FBI does. Um, and I, that, I think, did a disservice for DHS and its role. Um, there was a reason we were created, and we are supposed to be partners with, with the FBI, and they sometimes don't like that. Um, but that was part of the challenge. Um, the intelligence lapse... I think it's it's a manifestation of organizations that had been beaten up for four years, multiple changes of leadership at DHS, um, FBI, like clearly everybody was worried that Director Ray was going to get fired. Um, and I think people were trying to protect Ray. Um, my understanding is that there might have been a bulletin that was drafted before January 6th that they were thinking about putting out, not, not this thing that DHS put out, that's a public document, um, but uh, DHS and FBI often issue joint bulletins to law enforcement. And it's my understanding that um, somewhere along the routing, they decided not to. Um, I, I think the investigation will show that was a big mistake, but they were probably making that mistake out of not, I don't think it's a first amendment thing. I think it was very much a, we don't wanna make the president mad thing. Um, there is also, uh, a reticence within the entire federal government, uh, whether it's the military or the intelligence community, 
to learn from the mistakes that happened over the summer. And you, it's the pendulum effect, right? Like DHS got in trouble because they were spying on journalists in Portland. They should not have been doing that. But rather than address that particular problem of no, you don't, you don't uh, report on journalists, um, they kind of swing the other way and stop doing any so open source intelligence, which they have the authority to do. So some of this is an organization's have been beat up. You're damned if you do, damned if you don't. And Congress needs to pass some laws authorizing and telling DHS, this is your job. And then we need politicians to stop playing political gotcha every time um, you know, a report comes out that is less than perfect. Let's learn from mistakes, but let's not you know, play, make it political football, which has been, that's what's happened over the last 10 years when it comes to domestic terrorism. So there's a lot of blame to go around. I think getting rid of Trump, getting rid of his political influence over DOJ and DHS, which should not be political institutions, um, helps a lot. Um, but but there is also the, the bias issue as it pertains to the threat itself. It, it just, we should have seen it so much sooner than we did. And it just took too long for us to detect it. And I think uh, you know, you almost need outside experts to come in and help us understand why. How did we miss this? Why did it take mm -hmm. us until 2019 for us to realize this growing threat? Um, so, and I'm sure systemic bias is part of the, the the answer there. Well, I think that's very interesting. This has obviously been a very interesting discussion. We could go on and on. And even before I wrap up, I'd like to say, I hope, Elizabeth, you'll consider coming back because I think there's a lot more to go over here. But as I listen to you talk, uh, it's clear to me that this is something that is big and complicated and requires a kind of systematic investigation. Uh, and of course, you know, the, the, the last time that, you know, we did that, that, you know, we, 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 we um, might think of as an example is the 9-11 Commission, uh, which was a mixed bag, not entirely a successful undertaking. Uh, and that's led some people to be skeptical. But here you have both this issue of the culpability of the president, the, the complexity of how this was organized, getting to the truth about it. Because it, you know, even in what you were just saying, if the, if somebody didn't do something, uh, you know, prepare the Capitol for this attack because they were afraid doing so might offend the president, that's one thing. If somebody didn't do it because somebody in the White House said, stand down on these kind of things, that's entirely different and, and of course has an implication. So we need all the facts, the connections, the, the, we need to see what the communications were between these groups. We need to see the financing and so forth. But I think we also need to treat this as an emerging kind of a threat. Um, and that it's new in a variety of different kinds of ways. When you were talking about the, the, the way this group came together and that you can't really use RICO in this kind of loose, loosely affiliated collaboration. You know, I, I thought of this, this recent thing on Wall Street with this Robin Hood thing and, and, and where you bring together a loose group of investors and they act and, 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 and in, in, a, in a sort of collaborative way and that living in an age of networks you can create kind of flash mobs, you can create flash organizations, and they need to be treated in a certain kind of a way. You want to preserve the freedoms that allow people to do it. But on the other hand, you need to look at it and say, at what point does this cross a line? At what point can we step in and stop this? And that's 
particularly important where you've got big groups of loosely affiliated. So we really need to do a lot of investigation. This is a kind of a new phenomenon. And I think my takeaway from this is that we may someday look back on January 6th as the beginning of something and not um, at the as the final part of the president's effort to to retain office. In any event, Elizabeth, thank you very much for joining us. Ryan, of course, thank you for joining us. All of you out there listening, thank you for joining us. Um, tune, again, tune in again next week to the DSR Network. We've got a lot of interesting stuff coming up, uh, including uh, in addition to our regular Monday and our Thursday shows, a conversation with uh, 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 New York Times columnist Tom Friedman, where you'll be able to call in with your own questions. Uh, lots, lots and lots of stuff. And for those of you looking for Kavita, who normally is with us here on Thursdays, I would direct your attention to our uh, somewhat lighter Friday show, The Secret Life of Cookies, where we discuss the world over baking things. Uh, and Kavita is going to be the guest on that show tomorrow, and she's going to bake things as a, as a way of relieving all the work she's been doing on uh, COVID, but talking about that as well. So uh, go to the dsrnetwork.com to listen and uh, see what we've got going on. Uh, come back soon, Elizabeth. See you next week, Brian. And thanks, everybody. Uh, stay healthy. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Deep State Radio. Deep State Radio, hosted by David Rothkopf, produces new episodes two to three times per week and brings together top expert policymakers and journalists from the national security, foreign policy, and political communities. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you become a member of the DSR Network, you'll receive benefits such as ad-free listening via private feed, discounts to virtual events, and Deep State Radio swag, and access to the member-only Slack community. This is one of the most closely followed podcasts among the people influencing the most important decisions in Washington and worldwide today. You can learn more by visiting the dsrnetwork.com. Listeners to Words Matter will receive 25% off the regular membership price. Use code WORDSMATTER at checkout.